Well, a few years ago, I found myself sitting for lunch with a Nigerian priest. And there were others at the table, but the two of us got to talking. And he was nice, and he asked me about my ministry, because he knew I was a pastor. And he asked about my church and about our struggles. And I complained to him about, you know, like how we don't have our own building, and the struggles of the trailer, and the struggles of church planting in a secular city, and all the rest. And then I asked him, I said, I said, how's your ministry going? And he agreed with me that ministry is not easy. And without a hint of superiority or irony, he shared how hard it was and how hard it had been to gather for worship with the constant threat of Boko Haram. And he shared with me, if you don't know Boko Haram, it's the terrorist group. In Nigeria, the targets Christians. And his solution for the struggle was prayer, he shared with me, and setting people at the doors. And it was humbling. And it reminded me of two things. Number one, I am insulated in the comfortable Christian West. And number two, that kind of insulation from the global church leads to what I would call an inflation, an inflated view of the persecutions that I experience. Insulation of the global church leads to inflation of our own sense of persecution. You know, I get an inflated persecution complex without awareness of and without prayer for my brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are worshiping even as I speak in the midst of opposition. I think when we read a text like Nehemiah 4, which we just heard read aloud, I think we immediately think of our own individual experiences of persecution. We think of our own life. We think of our own individual experiences of opposition in our workplace or amongst our family. And that is not wrong in and of itself. But let me just say this. It's a very Western and it's a very individualistic, modern way to read your Bible. The Bible says that we are an international body. But because we are so individualistic, we forget this. So what if instead we used a text like this, Nehemiah 4, to remind us of what Karen Ellis calls the global underground church. The global underground. The global underground is all of God's people who are underground, either literally or metaphorically, because... Of severe persecution. Uh, The church in Nigeria. Is underground. The church in China. Is underground. The church in Iran is underground. And Karen Ellis would remind us. That the historic black church in America. Was and in many ways still is. An underground church. I mean, think about it. The only churches that were bombed in my living, in my memory, by terrorists, were those in the South during the Civil Rights Movement. Okay? The global underground. Severe persecution for their faithfulness. 
So what if we read about opposition of God's people in the scriptures and see it as an opportunity to think and to pray with the global underground in mind? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it this way. What if we read a passage like we just heard this morning and we see it as an opportunity to think Catholicly, not big uppercase C, Roman Catholic, lowercase C, Catholic. Catholic is a word that the church has used forever to mean universal. All of God's people, no matter where they are. Everyone united to Jesus by faith, no matter where they live. And no matter what timeline they existed on God's earth, that is the church Catholic, lowercase c. And so what I would love to encourage us all to do this morning is to think Catholicly in a comfortable age. Think Catholicly in a comfortable age because Catholicity is a good practice in the age of comfort. Catholicity in the age of comfort will remind us that our connection to other Christians is deeper than our connection to our own family. Living in and living with the global underground in an age of comfort will remind us that there is life and death opposition happening right now to brothers and sisters who are indeed closer than our biological brothers and sisters. Who are, who, whom we are united to in Christ. Thinking of the global underground in an age of comfort will keep us from growing stale. It will ignite our prayer life. And we will learn to weep with those who are weeping. And not just folks in our own community, though we certainly do that. But we will learn to weep with those who are weeping in other communities. God's people experience persecution in two ways this morning in the text we just read. Verbal threats in verses 1 through 3 which then escalate to violent threats in verses 7 through 8. Really, it's bookended by threat. The entire project of God's people listening to God, being faithful to God's call, doing what God called them to do, all of that is sort of bookended or walled in by threat, by real threat. And so Sanballat, if you remember, he has legal power as a governor. Sanballat has legal power as a governor. He became angry, according to verse 1, if you look down, and greatly enraged. And then he attacked with his words. He jeered God's people. And this verbal attack came in the form of five questions. Five jeering questions. The first question attacks their identity as God's people, calls them feeble. The second, third, and fourth attacks their trust in God. And the final question attacks their vision. It belittles their vision that God gave them. God's vision. God's honor. God's glory. God's ask. He's belittling it with his words. He's attacking with his words. And, uh, and then Tobiah, remember, who has influence as an aristocrat. So right here we have Sanballat, who has legal influence uh, as, a, as, a, as a governor. And then we have Tobiah, who sort of has cultural influence as an aristocrat. The two team up, and he sort of tells a bad joke, right? If a fox goes up on it, you know, it's not going to last. Like a really bad joke. But what's he doing? He's getting in on it, mocking them, mocking the quality of their work and their faithfulness. And so... Maybe uh, we can relate to this kind of ridicule in our faith. Uh, you hear perhaps from folks, you're a fanatic. You really believe that stuff? 
or your sexual ethic is bigoted, or even more subtle, things like this. I'm glad you find comfort in your religion. Insinuating, of course, that they found comfort in a better thing, right? So that might be your experience, and I'm not going to belittle that, that's for sure. But do know this. Uh, I wonder if we can relate to the violent threats that we read about in verses 7 and 8. Because what happens in 1 through 3 is in some ways merely a prelude to what's going to happen. And, and, I, and I just will tell you that as we continue to read Nehemiah, things get ramping up. So that by verse 7 and verse 8, the people of God are surrounded from every side. Uh, Sanballat is from the north. Tobiah is to the east. It mentions the Arabs in verse 7 and 8. They are to the south, and the Ashdodites are to the west. And so this is the moment, friends, when we start to think about the global underground. Okay? This is where we have to cast our hearts towards our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, for hundreds of churches around the world today, it's Freedom Sunday. And it's organized by the Christian organization International Justice Mission, IJM. It's a Sunday where the local church thinks global. When we spotlight injustice and persecution that is happening in the global underground right now. I recently read a report that summarized the state of the global underground. I'll put it behind me. Persecution against Christians is the worst it's ever been in human history. In 2016, estimates for the number of Christians worldwide who have suffered some form of persecution for their faith range from 200,000 to 600,000. These numbers, again, 2016, have grown exponentially since. The global underground in Iraq has gone from 1.5 million to 3,000. The global underground in Syria has shrunk by half. The global underground in Sudan faces the death sentence for mere faithfulness. The global underground in Nigeria, as we heard, they're in serious trouble. Over 6,000 Christians have been killed since January by Boko Haram and other, other groups. The global underground in North Korea, there is one, is enslaved. In labor camps. So what do we do in the face of this? Well, usually we just ignore it, right? That's usually what we do. We just ignore it. Uh, but we can't. We can't ignore it. And I think this passage is God's grace to us because it gives us something that we can actually do as a comfortable church in the face of such a global reality. Two things. Prayer. Prayer. And presence. We're going to talk about each. Let's unpack first faithful prayer. Because how does Nehemiah react to the verbal and violent threats? In both cases, how does he react? Prayer. It's astonishing. And in two different forms. The first form of prayer that that we encounter in this uh, after verses 1 through 3 is what we'll call justice prayer. A prayer for justice. And then the second prayer that he prays uh, right in the midst of the escalating threats is a prayer of protection. So let's take a look at both of those. Justice prayer 
and a prayer of protection. Look at verses 4 through 5. Nehemiah bolds, uh, prays boldly for justice. And this verse, if you were listening along as I was reading, it probably made you uncomfortable a little bit. Like, what is that doing in my Bible? Especially the same Bible that has Jesus saying, pray for your enemies and turn the other cheek. But we can't neglect a prayer like this. This is a justice prayer. Uh, and they're all over the Bible. Many of the Psalms are justice prayers like this. And so Nehemiah is what he's doing in this prayer is he's turning to God for justice instead of taking it into his own hands. You see that? Instead of avenging, he's, he's, he's turning to the God of justice. And he's saying, in essence, do right. Do right, O righteous one. That's a prayer for justice. It's trusting that God will do right in his timing. And so the other day, we went to the conservatory, our family did. On Thursday, my day off, we went to the conservatory. And I don't know if you know this, but they built this outdoor kids park. Have you seen this thing? Amen. Anybody? This thing is incredible. And I say this as an adult. Like I, I said to Josie, I said, Josie, uh, do I have a pass to this? Because I want to come here. Like I want to work from here. Like this is magical. It's an amazing place. Anyway, Josie and I were up in a tree house. Okay. Like as, as you do, right. You just hang out at a tree house and our kids were below us. They were below us playing with uh, some building block things. And we were watching them. The breeze was blowing. And it was amazing. And I watched this. One of my, one of my boys, stole a block from my little Lou. And what Lou did is he looked up at mom and dad, he pointed at his brother, and he said, Hey! (laughs) Friends, that's a justice prayer. But this prayer that we just read in the Bible still seems harsh. And so I want us to keep three things in mind. The first is this, that the prayer probably seems harsh because we're comfortable. We live in a comfortable age. I love what Paul Carter writes about justice prayers. I'm going to just quote him. He says, we are at home, perhaps too at home, in our largely peaceful, prosperous, and accommodating culture. And so we feel no particular attachment to these desperate and bloody prayers. Yet, he goes on, I imagine that they seem a little more comprehensible to Christians hiding from the authorities in mainland China. I imagine they flow right off the tongue in the labor camps of North Korea. I imagine they bring comfort, hope, and resolve in the basement of Evan Evan Prison in Tehran. His suggestion? If you can't pray the justice prayers in the Bible for yourself, pray them for someone else. Your brothers and sisters in Pakistan, in Libya, in South Sudan, in Nigeria, in other parts of the world. That's number one. Number two, this. This kind of prayer, I think, can release us to love. 
Remember, Nehemiah turns to the God of justice instead of taking justice into his own hands. And that's what prayers of justice do. Paul gives us the nonviolent logic of a prayer of justice in Romans 12, 19 and 20. I'll just quote him. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Don't do it. As tempting as it may be to avenge yourselves, to take justice into your own hands, as tempting as it may be. He says, don't do it, beloved. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Instead, he says, leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What does Paul then say? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is the tactic and what fueled Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In the face of grave injustice. His justice prayers freed him, paradoxically, to nonviolence and love. We entrust final judgment to the true judge. And when we entrust final judgment to the true judge, we don't need to carry the burden ourselves. We can take it off our shoulders and we can love our enemy. That's number two. Number three, it is possible to pray for someone's salvation and pray for justice. Those two things can combine in the heart of a believer and ought to actually. It's a false choice to decide between the two. And the victims of the Charleston Nine, for instance, just days after they were, they said, I forgive you to Dylan Roof. And they also expressed a deep desire for justice. Okay? And I learned from them. Let's never forget that we were once enemies of God, brought near by grace. So that's a a prayer for justice. The other tactic that we see here that Nehemiah sort of trains us in is protective prayers. In verse 9, he prays for protection and then he sets a guard. Now, he... Both are true, right? He, he, uh, in both cases, Nehemiah understands the priority of prayer for protection in the face of opposition. But prayer for Nehemiah does not negate common sense. You are not faithless if you pray for protection and call the police. Okay? You're not. There's no tension in the life of Nehemiah between these two things. It shouldn't be in your life either. But we ought to pray for protection. We pray for justice and we pray for protection. And we do that in our own lives. But we also especially do it for the global church. Okay, That's our opportunity right now. Is to pray these prayers for them. But to do this, of course, we need to know two things. Who are the despised and oppressed? And where are they? And so my challenge for all of us this morning is to just get educated. And what's going on in the global world? We have so many resources, like IJM, for instance, I mentioned, or Voice of the Martyrs uh, here, whose mission it is serving persecuted Christians through practical and spiritual assistance and leading other members of the body of Christ into fellowship with them. And if you just go to their website or listen to their podcast, what you will learn on a day-to-day basis is, is facts on the ground persecution that is happening to your brothers and sisters. 
And you can start to pray prayers for justice and prayers for protection. When we love our enemies and call for justice, we are representing the God who is both just and merciful. And that's our opportunity as a church this morning. There's something else that the comfortable church in the West can do, however. And I'll call it this. We'll call it faithful presence. Faithful presence is where, uh, faithful presence wherever we live, wherever we work. We can demonstrate unity with the global underground by living faithful to God in the face of our own, what I'll call micro-oppositions. I'll say that again. We demonstrate unity with the global underground when we stay faithful to God in the midst of our own oppositions. Small as they may be in comparison to the church in Nigeria. A faithful presence. I mean, verse 6 in this passage is so convicting and so simple and so powerful. So we built. (laughs) There's a threat. And then verse 6 just comes along like a throwaway. So we built. So we built. So they were faithful. They didn't run away. They faced their opposition head on. Through faithfulness. And we... And the comfortable West have an opportunity to do the same. We stand with the global underground when we don't capitulate the faith because it's getting harder and more embarrassing. Because it puts pressure in our workplace. It's tempting. I know it's very tempting. It's very powerful. But we, we can stay faithful. We can do what God is calling us to do and to believe. We can. We can do it. We can do it. We can do it. And when we do, we stand with the global underground. And notice that uh, the God's people in this passage, they, they, they keep going and they do it no matter the cost. And notice that they focus on completion and not perfection. Do you notice? The wall was only half halfway built, but they wanted to finish the job. In a book called Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries, which is a great book title. I'll say it again. It's a, it's a book by a historian, Larry Hurtado at Edinburgh. Uh, he's a historian. He wrote a book called Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? He points out that this is a question that historians like to ignore. Because becoming a Christian in the first three centuries was highly, highly dangerous and costly. And here's his quote. He says, so there must have been positive, distinctive features of early Christianity that drew converts and that compensated for the social and political costs of being a Christian. The answer What was that compensation? It was the grace and the love relationship with God, which was unheard of in pagan religion at the time. And so what also compelled people to convert, Hurtado would share with us, is their difference. Their distinctiveness. They owned 
the weird, let's just name it now, the weird, weird particularities of our faith. I mean, we are a people of the Messiah who gather around every Sunday worshiping a resurrected God-man. Okay? We own that. And that is weird. Okay? But it's true. It's so weird, it's true. (laughs) One of the strongest arguments of the faith, in my opinion, is we can't make this up. And as we gather ourselves around Messiah Jesus, risen at God's right hand, as we obey His bizarre and very costly, but when we do it, very beautiful commands, the church grows. And it's happening. It's happening. Jesus says we're salt, and so we have to stay different. Or else we lose our mission. And so a couple ideas for us. Number one, stand in solidarity with the global underground with faithful presence in your life and in your work and in your neighborhood. Right now, when American culture is pressing into us in more passive ways, we need to own, we need to own our allegiance to Jesus. It's our gift to our neighbors. It's our gift to our neighbors. Do you believe that? It's our gift to them. It's our mission. And number two, pray for the faithful presence of those who are experiencing far greater cost for their faithfulness in other parts of the world. Pray for them. They're under immense pressure to capitulate the faith. Pray for them. So what is Catholicity in the age of comfort? It's faithful prayer and it's faithful presence. So it's two things. And we can do this because we're united to a faithful Savior, Jesus, who will make all things right and is a right judge and will make all things right. I mean, what if we prayed not just for renewal at hope? Think about this. What if, what if we saw Nehemiah as a call and a summons for our church to think internationally more and more and more? What if we started to pray not just for renewal on this part of campus of Ohio State, but we actually prayed for renewal across the globe? That the persecuted church, as the church fathers would say, would grow by the blood of the martyrs. That it would be the seed for the church. So I learned this. I learned that there have been more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than the past 13 centuries combined. I'm learning that the church underground in North Korea is growing. It's growing. In China, it's growing. Can we come alongside them? Can we stand with them? All that means is we're owning our unity in Christ.